This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Elizabeth Anker, also known as Libby, or that's what I call you, um, who is the author of Ugly Freedoms. This is published by Duke University Press, and I believe it was published in 2022. Um, and, and Libby goes through a very interesting analysis of thinking about freedom and liberty um, and integrating a whole bunch of different ways to think about freedom and liberty um, in our modern context through a variety of cultural artifacts as well as political theorists. But I'm going to let her talk all about that. Um, I'd like to welcome Libby Anker to the podcast again, since she was my first interviewee when I started podcasting all those low many years ago. Um, and I would like to ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project about ugly freedoms. Um, first, Lily, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really delighted to be here and delighted to know that I was the, the official first podcaster of your podcasting career. Um, I came to this project after I had been looking at questions of freedom in my first book, Orgies of Feeling, Melodrama and the Politics of Freedom. And I had been frustrated by what I had diagnosed as this kind of visions of freedom that on the one hand were so violent and brutal. I had specifically in that book looked at the way in which the language of freedom justified the war on terror. Um, and I was also concerned about the ways in which freedom as a concept seemed on both, both not only the political right, but also the political uh, left often seemed to entail a kind of heroism, a sense that freedom was practiced by this heroic individual subject who was strong and brave and courageous, and that freedom was in these large cathartic gestures of either, you know, individual self-fashioning or a sense of individual breaking one's own chains of domination. And I felt that this vision of freedom as heroic and as individualistic, both denied the ways in which freedom projects are so often collaborative and also seemed so irrelevant to the lives of so many people who, you know, are constantly treading water just to survive in the world. And I was looking for understandings of freedom that, um, you know, not only were more violent on the one hand, but, uh, you know, in the, in the opposite way, freedom that was more accessible, that was more humane, that included many more of the us mortals in this world who might be practicing freedoms, uh, you know, in a more daily basis than perhaps we recognize because they were not able to be understood as individualistic or deeply cathartic. And, and so, I, I mean, again, this idea of the individual, the heroic, the, the sort of great breaking of chains is, is a narrative that we are so embedded with in so many ways 
in the United States and elsewhere, but particularly with regard to our popular culture and notions of, you know, how the United States came to be. Um, but before we get into some more of that, which is a lot of the thread that you take up in the book, what do you mean by freedom itself? This is a complicated question because there are two different versions of freedom that I look at in the book. Um, on the one hand, I look at um, definitions of freedom that are popular within the history of political thought, and especially Western Euro-American versions of freedom. Those are versions of freedom that, on the one hand, can, can be tied to versions of kind of individual self-determination, um, you know, a, a, a kind of strength in breaking one's chains. They can also entail practices of things like collective self-rule, Freedom, you know, is, is one of the most, as you know well, is one of the most contested concepts in the history of political thought. And so nobody has ever conclusively defined what freedom is, how it can be practiced. Is it non-domination? Is it participation? Is it collective transformation of a world to full equality of all peoples? You know, uh, is it, you know, the, the, the performance of, you know, one's kind of one's selfhood in its in its recognition by others. And so because nobody has conclusively defined it, I also was not interested in saying there is only one definition, but I was interested in looking at how different definitions oftentimes produce forms of violence in their wake, forms of violence that then get disavowed in those understandings of freedom is always ideal. So I'm interested in how versions of freedom like non-domination oftentimes actually produce forms of domination as, as the exercise of non-domination. And I can talk more specifically about that. Um, but but on, on the converse hand, and this is where I feel like I actually uh, step into a more exposed and vulnerable role, I was trying to also offer definitions of freedom that I am invested in that I think can counter some of those forms of freedom that produce violence and subjugation, even when they disavow it. And so in that sense, I look at understandings of freedom that I value, that would be the sense of being able to equally and fully participate in the collective collaboration of the world alongside others uh, in full equality without domination or exploitation. So it's drawing in a sense from other definitions, but trying to also think about freedom as a practice that is connective, that is collaborative, that is interdependent on other people, and that doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, a, a conclusive action once and for all. That freedom can often be practiced in ways that feel small, that might be in situations of dependence rather than interdependent, or, or you know, rather than. Um, uh, you know, heroic freedom, that freedom itself can be connected to others and accessible. And and one of the points that you bring up early in the book um, is this question that I sort of wondered about with regard to the moral dimensions of um, individuals practicing freedom. Because one of the things that you say is in this heroic understanding that the, the people who get to be free or perform freedom often in our, our sort of um, viewing or have them in our imagination that they have a kind of moral valence to them. Um, but your suggestion is that that should not necessarily be where we draw our attention to understanding freedom. 
I think in order to explain a little more what I mean that freedom can often be practiced in immoral or morally compromised ways, I should probably explain a little bit what I mean by ugly freedom, because I think that can help us to, to figure it out. So when I the, the phrase ugly freedoms refers specifically to practices of freedom that produce subjugation, domination, and exploitation as freedom. In other words, it's not just that freedom is, or, you know, that that um, violence or exploitation is the accidental byproduct of somebody's free expression, but that practices of subjugation are integral to practices of freedom. So one example would be just thinking about something like the founding of the United States, which we often, you know, is an archetypal definition of freedom or moment of freedom in which you know, a group of people who have been under subjugating rule by the colonies produce their own, you know, radical act of world making where they, you know, cast off their oppression and form a new political world order based on claims of equality of all people and equal participation, right? It's actually significantly more radical understanding of freedom than we see in like the U.S. Constitution, for instance. But so on the one hand, we have this beautiful act of, of kind of radical political world making based on equal peoples. But as we know, on, you know, just to point out on the one hand, the most obvious that only 2% of the people, for instance, in Philadelphia were actually allowed to participate in this radical act of world-making at the moment of its inception. And of course, this radical act of world-making was on the one hand predicated on indigenous dispossession. It literally could not happen without having you know, independence on the land of people who had been living and occupying the land for centuries, who were now um, you know, dispossessed of that land and dispossessed of their own political practices and 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 cultural inheritances, so that this radical act of world making requires indigenous dispossession for its practice, and it also for its own funding for the sense that uh, the nation could actually be politically and economically independent of. Uh, of of Britain, it also relied on the financing from enslavement, right? And as we know, you know, most of the initial presidents and many of the signers of the Declaration were enslavers, and it, you know, not just that their worldview came from practices of slavery, but also that their freedom to write treatises on liberty and to, you know to practice this act of world making relied on the material benefits that they accrued from forcing people to labor for them for free for their entire lives and in their families in perpetuity. So this is what I mean by ugly freedom. The ways in which acts of freedom often rely on forms of subjugation, brutality, and violence that are then disavowed in the stories that we tell about freedom. The connection to morality is really just that when we often imagine what these practices look like, we imagine that the people practicing them are morally pure. On the one hand, that doesn't actually do justice to what the people who are practicing freedom are doing, as you know, as the the founding quote unquote fathers, you know, clearly show us. But also in what James Baldwin tells us about morality, that morality and the assumption that freedom can only be practiced or that we can only assign moral virtue to pure subjects often denies the lived complexity of human beings in the world. And it forces people to live in ways in which their 
you know, erstwhile practices of freedom or navigating the world are otherwise deemed immoral or bankrupt. So trying to move freedom out of these spaces in order to see how freedom can be practiced in ways, you know, in, in different ways that might have otherwise be considered immoral, but might themselves offer more emancipatory potential than things that we might see, for instance, in the American founding. And and the narrative component of thinking about freedom in a way that doesn't have the ugly component to it is also where we often get stuck in thinking about what freedom means to me, the individual, the citizen, um, because I have these rights that allow me to make decisions and choices before we get to our discussion of neoliberalism. Um, but that the, the narrative is such that it's so embedded, it's, it's impossible to sort of break out of it. So in, in thinking about sort of breaking out of that narrative, I would just ask you a little bit more to talk about ugly itself um, and, and you have discussed ugly freedom, but what the term ugly, I mean, mostly we think of it as the opposite of beauty or beautiful. Um, but you're not necessarily talking about it in that way because it's not a perception per se. I use the term ugliness in two ways. In the first way that I use it, is where I use it to help me diagnose freedoms that otherwise we that we imagine to be ideal or morally unblemished, but are themselves you know, brutal and exploitative. And calling them ugly draws, on the one hand, an ugliness's capacity to um, to challenge what we imagine our ideals to be. And oftentimes, you know, ugliness is considered, you know, to form a break in what we imagine the beautiful to be. It's a condemnation of an ideal. So I use ugliness in that way. Um, and also a part, part of, you know, drawing on this aesthetic language is to also show the ways in which political politics and aesthetics are always intertwined, right? That ugliness has, um, is often as a concept tied to, and, and ugliness and beauty are both tied to political concepts, that beauty itself is often used by kind of dominant classes in any political order to describe themselves as the beautiful and to denigrate whatever is not considered the, the you know, uh, part of dominant classes as ugly. So if we just look at the kind of rise of modern political thought in Europe and it's, you know, the concomitant rise, rise of kind of modern aesthetics, Oftentimes we see what's considered the beautiful, beautiful is, you know, analogous to the standards of European beauty, of white Christian European beauty and ugliness attaches to Jews, to people of color who are colonized by Europeans, to people who are disabled, to poverty. So on the second way of using ugliness, I'm trying to point to spaces and peoples who have often been denigrated as ugly, but who often... Uh, can offer us a different understandings of what free practice can be. So going into spaces that have been denigrated is ugly and seeing what kinds of practices of freedom are there that are not necessarily celebrated by European ideals, but often can offer more emancipatory potential is the second way I use the concept of ugliness. And that's why ugly freedom itself has a double valence. On the one hand, it's a critique of forms of freedom that are understood as ideal and unproblematic. And on this other hand, it's a way of looking for and 
and excavating practices of freedom in spaces that would otherwise be disparaged as unworthy, as neglected, as being practiced by people who might not seem to have anything to offer heroic, you know, glamorous practices of freedom and trying to find something else in those spaces um, that we can, you know, uh, fi- you know, kind of celebrate. And that's that second aspect of ugly freedom that I, I trace throughout the book. And, and so I wanted to ask you to sort of start our, our um, sort of trot through your book um, in terms of this question of not now we now we have an understanding of freedom to a degree. <laughs> we have an understanding of the the sort of dichotomous nature of freedom that it's often connected to violence and exploitation and subjugation that we have this understanding of ugly freedom, which is this sort of double understanding. Um, But you take us through in the book, a number of different spaces where you're looking at different aspects of the idea of ugly freedom and what it, it sort of traces has a lot to do with colonialism Um, imperialism and enslavement and land theft, as you just talked about it with the American founding, but broadly white supremacy, um, neoliberal capitalism and climate change, which don't often come up all together, although neoliberalism and climate change sort of do, but they're not always knitted together. Um, so I guess my question here is, as I ramble on, um, how did the chapters that you sort of take up and the, the sort of cultural artifacts and political thought that you take up, how did they come together for you as you started to sort of work through this thesis? I wanted to make an argument that Ugly freedoms are imbricated in some of the most violent and problematic issues of our time. And those broadly would be issues of um, settler colonialism, you know, patriarchy and heteropatriarchy, uh, enslavement and its legacies, white supremacy and climate change and neoliberalism. And each of these, right, not except for neoliberalism, which is really driven by claims about freedom that dismantle, you know, economic and social worlds. All of them are justified in different ways, but all, and and they're motivated by different systems of power. So I'm not interested in flattening and conflating all of these, but each of these different systems of power has been justified in the past as uh, part of a practice of freedom. And so I wanted to trace what that looked like. So I look at the, in the first chapter of the book, the ways in which the origins of the plantation system, which germinated, you know, out of settler colonialism, patriarchy and white supremacy, um, how the early, and capitalism, how the early plantation system was connected to practices of freedom, right? We often see the plantation as the antithesis of freedom, but in many ways at the time of its origins, it was considered the practice of freedom. It was the freedom of independent colonial subjects who were able to practice economic independence and political independence in the colonies through the creation of plantations. So a lot of our origins of freedom, freedom is entrepreneurialism, freedom is local autonomy, 
uh, freedom as private property and having control over one's property originate in the systems of enslavement that were created on the plantation. We also see it, you know, in, in, you know, in the legacies of enslavement up to the present. We see it in neoliberalism in the way that neoliberalism promises that, you know, uh, that its policies of limiting state power and of uh, freeing the marketplace are done in the service of the exercise of individual freedom and the free circulation of capital, um, which, you know, are incredibly destructive. And also in practices of climate change, which I think are often not seen as connected to freedom in any way. But we can see this from the origins of the history of political thought, or at least from its modern origins, right, where both thinkers like Locke and Kant argue that the opposite of freedom is nature and therefore that the practice of freedom is to control nature to they use the language of domination and subjugating nature all of the time and that reverberates up into the present in the way in which we use resources as practices of freedom and economic prosperity in ways that are destroying our climate and destroying our world so each of these i wanted to show how they um you know, rely for their justification in some sense and often, you know, entail practices of freedom that are destructive, you know, that are destructive to peoples and worlds and, um, you know, and, and, and lives that are both human and more than human. Uh, and, and so I want to ask you in each of these particular chapters where there are sort of case studies, if you will, um, of, you know, sort of, uh, getting at the basis of the idea of ugly freedom, you, you know, you sort of work on and encounter the political thought in certain regards, but then you usually, you take a cultural artifact um, and, and you explore it in context. And so I would love if you're willing to go with me on talking about each of the cultural artifacts that you talk about in each of these sort of sections to explain a little bit about how they are demonstrations of thinking about ugly freedom. And I was particularly taken with Sugar Baby because I had never seen the image before. Um, And thankfully, you do have images in your book, which are really helpful. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the plantations sugar, which is still controversial and like huge sugar wars go on between the United States and France and all kinds of people. And I understand that the United States brought sugar to Iceland when we were there in the war. Um, There was no sugar there before. Uh, And so sugar is important, but people don't think about it because it's part of our daily lives. I did not know that about Iceland. That's fascinating. I'm not surprised, but it is quite fascinating. The reason I focused on sugar and on Kara Walker's mega sculpture that used, you know, 70 tons of sugar to create, you know, what we'll talk about in a minute, her marvelous sugar baby, is, you know, on the one hand, the history of sugar is really central to scholars of Caribbean history, scholars of enslavement and Africana studies. Um, And it is completely undiscussed in political thought and certainly in the history of political thought, right? And if we're going to address sugar at all, it's just going to be, you know, childhood pleasures, you know, candy, deliciousness, you know, perhaps something about, you know, worries about health and obesity. But I wanted to show the ways in which sugar is central for helping us to understand the way in which 
ugly freedom uh, originates in a transnational context, and especially the way in which um, ugly freedoms is central to liberal thought, right? Sugar helps us to see that linchpin that connects liberal freedom to sugar plantations in the Caribbean, right? Oftentimes when we think about where freedom originates, you know, we have a kind of, you know, the story that it originates in enlightenment centers of Europe and they make their way to the U.S. where they receive their, you know, their central moment in the declaration and the constitution. And, you know, not only did I want to show the violence of, you know, or, or the inadequacy of those stories, which many scholars of, you know, colonialism and post-colonialism have, have, have drawn on, but also to make an argument that studies about the violence of liberal freedom can be found in the Caribbean and specifically in the island of Barbados, which was the kind of origin space, not only for the rise of sugar as a mass consumption product, it was the origins of, it was the first successful place for British colonialism. Uh, It was the origins for many ideas of entrepreneurialism. And I even find traces of the importance of sugar to John Locke's political theories of what freedom is and how it's practiced, right? The way he celebrates the West Indies plantation owner, the way he looks at the importance of sugar as a commodity when he's detailing the role of property uh, and, and you know, what, what happens in the state of nature. So sugar is really central to the stories that we tell about liberalism in political thought. And I wanted, I feel like, you know, once we expand our vision beyond magic centers in Europe, and we actually take, you know, the, 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 the non-metropole seriously, we can see how important a space like Barbados, which was considered the crown jewel of Britain's colonial inheritances as the time that Locke was writing, which he knew well, because he was, you know, the secretary and the treasurer in charge of cultivating and supporting those plantations. And, and to, you know, that, that helps to, uh, to broaden it out. The reason I focus not only on Locke's political thought or on the conditions of the Barbadian sugar plantation, but also on Kara Walker's recent sculpture is because her sculpture both helps us to, to it uses sugar to, to reveal the ugliness of freedom. And it also uses sugar to help us to imagine forms of freedom that would not be tied to sugar plantation slavery. So her sculpture was created and destroyed in 2014 in the, you know, it was um, created inside a defunct Domino sugar factory. You know, Domino sugar was one of the most important, the, the industry itself of sugar was one of the most important industries in U.S. history. Sugar was one of the first 12, you know, um, Domino, what you know, it was previously American Sugar Corps, was one of the first 12 industries in the Dow Jones Industrial Exchange. You know, it eventually becomes defunct in part because of its you know, you know, transnational pull. And yet, you know, Carol Walker builds her sculpture in this space and draws on that history. She creates a, you know, a 70 ton sculpture of a new world mammy figure faced, you know, shaped in the, in the position of a sphinx you know, as, as a, almost a timeless figure who has more knowledge than the mortals that are conditioned at their feet. And the Sphinx is naked. And for Walker, part of what she's using is to show the ways in which histories of new world violence and brutality and what Jennifer Morgan has called the double labor, you know, the doubled labor, labor of enslaved women on plantations who were both 
forced to labor on plantations and forced through rape and other forms of torture and violence to reproduce children for continued labor on the plantation. And we see Walker examining and and making this available to her audiences at the same time that her mammy figure is more powerful than anybody else who comes in contact with it is unable to be exploited. And Walker, you know, in many ways, um, kind of opens her and shows the way in which for this mammy figure and her exposed, you know, both her kind of exposed reproductive organs, her exposed entire body is a way of imagining a kind of vulnerability and and relationality that is not about exploitation and violence, but it is about connection. It is about relationality. It's about um, what Amber Musser has called her kind of, um, dialogic labial economy, right? One in which freedom and connection is in a dialogic way and not about domination and mastery. And in that sense, I think the sugar baby moves us out of imagining freedom through a plantation experience altogether, which is never about that kind of um, dialogic relationality and asks us to think of freedom differently. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And, and so, and, and you sort of stay in context of, the ideas of enslavement, particularly in the quote new world, um, into the the next chapter, which is you know sort of showing the problematic interpretations of emancipation that you know emancipation happened one day um, and then all was good um, and that's the narrative of course and it's heroic and all problems were solved and you know I often talk to my students about you know how individuals go blink in an eye from being enslaved or enslaved people to being free people. And how do you think that happened? Um, and how do you think it worked out? They're like, huh? Uh, <laughs> so you, you take up a, a 2005 movie by Lars von Trier about um, sort of emancipation not happening. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about how that fits into the concept of ugly freedoms? Yeah. One thing I should say is each of the objects that I examine, the cultural objects in each chapter that open up into these political theory questions, each of them are problematic and or controversial, right? Um, Kara Walker's sculpture was controversial in many ways. Um, people weren't sure whether it was exploitative. Um, there were many audience members who tried to exploit it. And we see the same in the Lars von Trier film, Manderley, which shows a plantation in which enslavement is being practiced 70 years after the after emancipation, after the end of the Civil War. Um, and on the one hand, people read it as a ghastly spectacle of racism, because in the end of the of the the um in the end of the film, the characters 
who were free asked to be re-enslaved. And other people have seen it, um, especially um, philosophers in the Afro-pessimist tradition, like Frank Wilderson, has argued that it's a key text in Afro-pessimism because it shows the way in which um, anti-Blackness is so constitutive of the U.S. that uh, Blackness is only envisioned as a condition of permanent enslavement. And I wanted to read it as something in the middle of or or different from either of these readings. The film itself shows a plantation that there were enslavements being practiced. At the beginning of the film, a white woman comes, finds out that there's slavery still practiced on this plantation. She frees the plantation. She, you know, uh, you know, turns all the masters into workers, uh, unpaid workers on the plantation. All the people who were enslaved now become free, and she tries to create it into a, a free and equal society. It ends up that her new form of freedom is itself a form of domination, where she ends up taking control of everybody, including, you know, the the former masters and the formerly enslaved people. By the end of the film, her experiment implodes, the plantation is on fire, and the enslaved people petition to be re-enslaved and say that she should be the new ma'am of the plantation. She ends up running away and escaping, and that's how the film ends. So I read the film differently than how other people have saw it, because I argue that, yes, we can certainly see the way the film is critiquing the U.S.'s kind of um, perpetual practices of white supremacy and the way that white supremacy structures U.S. politics, certainly beyond, you know, the the antebellum moment. Um, and we can see the way the law itself is, is still structured as a form of white supremacy. And yet what we also see at the end of the film is that all of the white masters have run away from the plantation Grace, the woman who tried to free the plantation, who herself becomes an arbit- you know, a, a practitioner of domination and white supremacy, leaves the plantation. And what we have in the end is a self-sufficient black polity. What we actually learn at the end of the film is that this polity had been self-sufficient and self-governing even before Grace came to the plantation, that it was almost operating as a ruse of plantation power in order for the black people on the plantation to be able to practice their own forms of community. We learned that they were creating the laws on the plantation, that the ma'am was there at their request. And it was, you know, it's almost a claim that their self-sufficiency was able to function as long as the white world around it, you know, would, was more comfortable with imagining that this plantation practiced a slavery out of time than that it was its own self-sufficient and self-governing black polity. And so reading the film in this way and tracing some of the more violent practices of the film as practices of a kind of more subtle and morally compromised, but still fully kind of practices of liberation and emancipation is what I also want us to get out of the film. So the film helps us to see both the ugliness of freedom as white supremacy and also it imagines in ways that might otherwise seem problematic or deviant or... um, or morally compromised ways that white supremacy itself can be dismantled and that forms of self-governance that escape white supremacy uh, can be practiced just in ways we might not have looked for or imagined in the past. 
Um, <clears throat> and your next your next chapter dives headfirst into the problems with neoliberalism um, and freedom, and and really, uh, as I think about neoliberalism, false freedom because nothing that we do in a neoliberal setting seems to be actually free. Um, and you use this wonderful David Simon television show to help us think about all of the problems with neoliberalism and the sort of ideas of, of ugly freedom. Um, and you take up the wire 20 years since it was on television, um, but celebrating its, its relevance um, and, and sort of what it teaches us. Cause a lot of what, you know, sort of um, the golden age of television is about is also what we can learn possibly um, from watching and and in and thinking about these imagined spaces and what they're presenting. Um, so, what is it about the wire that helps us think about ugly freedom and neoliberalism? I'm gonna um answer about the wire by first making a comment about when you say the false freedom of neoliberalism. And part of what I want to argue is that as much as we might find the freedoms of neoliberalism repugnant, that they are still legitimate practices of freedom. I don't mean legitimate in that I morally legitimate them, but legitimate in the sense that freedom has been practiced as exploitation in the past, right? Or freedom has been practiced as the enforced isolation, as alienation from labor, as the refusal of social connection. And I think that, um, you know, we can say that it's false in the sense that we might not value it, but I think part of what I would want us to, sh to shift in thinking is to argue not whether freedom is true or false, but what forms of freedom do we need to revolt against and what forms of freedom are worth fighting for? So in that sense, neoliberalism is certainly a form of freedom that we need to revolt against. And there are aspects of what happens in The Wire that I think provide us forms of freedom that can be fought for. You know, The Wire just, you know, had the 20th anniversary of its onset, oftentimes considered um, next to The Sopranos, the, you know, most... Um, most important and uh, most influential show in the history of television. Um, it was also seen as problematic when it came out, especially by people who argued that part of what it was showing in Baltimore was a form of poverty porn. And I wanted us, you know, once again, I'm really interested in the problematic nature of each of these objects and to see how what The Wire can do happens within its problems and not, you know, that we don't have to erase its problems to see what it can show us. A part of what I also like about The Wire is that in looking at the history of Baltimore, it shows the origin moments when neoliberalism really takes hold of city politics. That certainly started earlier in the, you know, in the early 90s. But by the time of The Wire in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we really see the power of neoliberal policies, the way that they're defunding public life, the way that they are forcing all public institutions to measure themselves with performance metrics for growth and efficiency, the way they enforce competition among public, you know, civil servants, the way that tax breaks are considered a better form of revenue, tax breaks for developers rather than, you know, larger funding from the state, and to see how all of these shape the city. You know, the producers of The Wire understand it to be a deep 
diagnosis of the violence of capitalism and neoliberalism. And I think that's true. But what they also don't realize is The Wire also shows ways in which challenges to neoliberalism happen all the time. They just happen under the radar and they happen in some of the poorest and most neglected spaces of Baltimore, but by some of the poorest and most neglected residents of Baltimore. And that's partly why their challenges to neoliberalism go unnoticed or discounted. It's also because their practices are not heroic forms of freedom. They might happen by, you know, dismantling, you know, literally like, you know, punching surveillance systems. They might happen by using really low tech forms of surveillance and to think about or, you know, using low tech communication as a form of freedom from larger forms of surveillance. It often happens by people who are doing small actions that might not get noticed as a way of refusing neoliberal dictates. And one of the things I'm most interested in is how, you know, I think some of the most important work about neoliberalism and its power has looked at neoliberal subjectivity, the way in which neoliberal claims that we all need to be as efficient as possible, that our goals in life should not be about being good citizens concerned with justice, but individual entrepreneurs who can take on risk and succeed in the marketplace. Um, and, you know, and that we understand ourselves to be profit maximizers, right, rather than people deeply connected to others in the world. And I think that that work is really important. But part of what The Wire shows us is that it's also neoliberal subjectivity is really uncompelling, right? Most people don't desire to be profit maximizers. You might be economically compelled to be that. But The Wire shows us how easy it is to toss off that version of neoliberal subjectivity, right? Even people in weak spaces of power are not compelled by being profit maximizers and, you know, can easily challenge even ways in which their institutions might try to force them to be that in their jobs or workplaces. So I think when we peel back some of the larger themes of The Wire and we peel back its celebration of heroic individuals bucking the system or heroic police officers trying to do good, when we see the actions of smaller players and more morally compromised players, they actually are giving us kind of more robust, small ways that freedom can be practiced. They might be disappointing, they might not seem like they should be their cathartic or celebrated, but I think to discount them does a real injustice to the ways in which forms of freedom that might take shape as resistance to neoliberalism are often available all the time, even for people who are vulnerable. And and you talk about this also in particular, that <clears throat> there's a sigh in the teacher's lounge that is like, you know, a butterfly flapping down in Peru, creating a hurricane here or something to that effect. Um, can you explain why that particular example <laughs> is one that really gets at this, you know, sort of how we we may push against or fight against the the neoliberal impositions on us? Right. I, you know, I love this scene. Um, it comes during season four of The Wire. Each season focuses on a different institutional part of the city and season four focuses on the education system. And it tracks the experiences of students, teachers, administrators, you know, um, all connected to a middle school in a really impoverished and neglected part of the city. Part of the reason I was interested in it is because I was also a middle school teacher at the exact same time that the show is looking at this moment. So I felt some kind of kinship with the instructors themselves. They are 
you know, the, in the scene that I am particularly interested in, which is easily overlooked, it's a 45 second clip of the show itself. And once again, I think that's part of what I mean, where if we look at the, you know, kind of drill into some of the, 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 the easily overlooked moments, we find so much there that is rich that we could, you know, gloss over. And it's teachers are sitting in a teacher's lounge with a kind of paid instructor who is telling them how to make their jobs more successful, how to raise student scores, you know, which is the only thing that the Baltimore school system cares about, the only way that they actually measure teacher growth or teacher success. And the the paid instructor tells them that they need to repeat to themselves a mantra, I am lovable and capable. And that by repeating this mantra, their job satisfaction will increase, which means that their teacher effectiveness will increase with the ultimate goal, meaning that they will increase their students' test scores. And what's really interesting is that, you know, the teacher's response to this, that none of them buy it. We first see the teacher in this room and immediately there's a reverse shot that pans across the teacher's. Maybe one or two of them are paying attention, but the rest of them are rolling their eyes. They are talking on their phones. They're whispering to each other in the way that their own students do. Right? One of them is like passing a note to the other one in the back of the classroom. You know, they're obviously not attending to this. And, and you know, in the second part of the clip, when the, te- when the instructor starts talking about ways of, you know, managing the classroom, one of the speakers says to says out loud, you know, what you're saying doesn't actually correlate to what we're doing. And another teacher also starts to yell back at her and saying, this is ridiculous. This is not addressing my job con- conditions. And the whole room erupts in loudness and a kind of, you know, collective refusal and the whole scene ends. And part of my argument is that at the beginning, those small size and those small eye rolls right, are doing something. On the one hand, they are communicating to the speaker that nothing is happening. They are communicating a dearth of enthusiasm, which already goes against neoliberal dictates that you're supposed to be enthusiastic about your shitty job conditions at all times. Right? But just as importantly, once some teachers sense that, right, there's a kind of um, contagion that happens and other teachers start to feel more comfortable expressing their rejection. And that's what then allows a couple other teachers, right, given the contagious affects of disaffection in the room, to start speaking out and then to perform this collective refusal. So it's only because of those initial sighs of boredom and the eye rolling that this, you know, that this refusal happens. And without them, it would not. And I want us to attend once again to those small moments of the sigh and of the eye roll as a, as a resistance and a practice of refusal in this case, right? Not all practices of resistance are practices of freedom, but in this case, there's a refusal to buy into neoliberal metrics of job success and neoliberal subjectivity where I can just repeat an anodyne phrase and my job conditions will magically be better, right? That all the risk and problems of, of the job are on me and my own you know, moral compass, my own approach to the job. This doesn't mean that the collective refusal magically means the whole school system is restored, that the school is healed, right? That, 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 that wonderful learning in the classroom happens, everyone's satisfied with their jobs, right? That would be the heroic story of freedom that is not here. And so this freedom might seem disappointing. It might seem small, 
But if we don't attend to the fact that this was a practice of freedom, then we are really missing out on the ways in which these small refusals can happen and are much more accessible than we might otherwise realize. And and so I want to transition you to the last chapter, which titled Freedom as Climate Destruction. Um, and and again, this is a little bit of a swerve as they're sort of going along, although I get it. Um, and and you talk about um, all kinds of things that maybe we don't want to think about all the time, like what's going on in our digestive systems. Um, or I remember you giving, I think, part of this paper at an APT and I got really like, yeah, <laughs> that's not really descriptive, but, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so the idea of consumption, the idea of taming nature of, of, of ordering it, of taking it over as making nature not free, but that helps us as human beings to be free is also this question of, you know, how does ugly freedom work in this, in the context of climate change? Great. I will say this chapter was the one where I went out on the biggest limb because I really try to articulate new ways of imagining bodies that practice freedom in ways that can often be considered as disgusting or gross or the, eh. so your, your expression is exactly what I'm trying to capture here. But my hope is that, you know, thinking about these kind of more gross ways of imagining freedom actually can help to transmute that ug into something that is more about a kind of interest and curiosity. Um, and, and I'll explain, you know, what that looks like in a second. So I'm really, you know, on the one hand, I look at the ways in which practices of freedom, freedom, being able to control nature, to use all the resources that I can pay for, freedom to control the land, to to extract as much out of the land as possible, are forms of freedom that are, you know, th that have been practiced through colonialism, through capitalism, uh, certainly through forms of um, uh, dispossession of the land and that themselves contribute to climate violence. So really showing how practices of freedom contribute to the destruction of the land. I then look for practices of freedom that challenge this understanding that the human being is separate from nature, that the, the role of the human is to dominate nature, that we are, you know, the human exceptionalism, that we are the only creatures that can be free. And I do it in some gross ways. So on the one hand, I'm really interested in how our guts and our whole bodies are shaped by microbiota, which are the non-human biotic creatures that actually outnumber the, the, the human and the self cells in our body by a factor of somewhere between eight to one and 10 to one. So that numerically our bodies are primarily, you know, created by non-human, you know, creatures that often shape our, you know, our mood states, right? When we just look at the microbiota in our gut alone, microbiota condition are, you know, states of ease or depression. They help to determine when we are hungry or cranky. They help us to make decisions about the world, which doesn't mean they're the little puppets pulling the throne, but it does mean that when we imagine freedom is that we are self-determining, that that self-determining self is always a collective shaped by microbiota and that the microbiota in our body are in turn shaped by corporate economic technological decisions about how we eat, how we give birth, what do we put in our soap? What, how, is our, how is our municipality treating our wastewater? 
So it's not even that microbiota are an origin site, but that so many of the decisions of our culture, our economics, our technology condition aspects of our microbiota in ways that it's hard to determine the origin point of any decision. And, so, and you know, microbiota also protect our skin. Literally, our skin would start to like become decrepit and funguses would eat it if we, did, if we didn't have microbiota protecting us. So even what we imagine as our autonomous bodies are being protected by non-human selves, which I think shows the ways in which our bodies are collective and interdependent from the start. I also look at ways in which we are constantly eating the bodies of other people, right? The way in which every time we shake hands, if we put our hands to our mouth, we're exchanging DNA, we're eating people's shed skin, we're constantly eating fecal cells. And this is the part where, you know, when I presented this a couple of times at conferences and stuff, people are like, A, that's disgusting. B, I'm canceling my dinner plans with you. (laughs) (laughs) Not interested in eating you for dinner. Thank you. But, you know, I'm really interested in the ways in which these, you know, this challenges our notion of this individual autonomous self And it starts to mean that practices of freedom that we've always imagined to be autonomous and self-determining have never been as such. And maybe that means that practices of freedom that we might want to develop that that would be more participatory and collective are already drawing on the resources that we already have with us. And I think through some of these understandings, through um, feminist science studies, through indigenous studies, indigenous science studies, through queer inhumanisms, which looks at the ways in which our bodies are often centrally connected to non-human matter in the world, and to see ways in which we're often connected to other bodies, other creatures, those that are dead and alive. And in fact, the front cover of the book, which is a beautiful piece of art by uh, an emerging uh, artist in Lebanon, Dahlia Basiri, uses dust, which is literally the amalgamation of tiny worlds, right? It's our, it's a dead skin cells. It's the cells of live creatures and mites. It contains bomb fallout. It contains the residues of colonial occupation. It contains drywall, right? The ways in which it shows the interconnection of worlds, um, you know, allows us to think about you know, and dust itself as a reminder that we're all going to die in moments and that those cycles are about composing and decomposing worlds, uh, you know, helps us to, to imagine ways in which forms of interconnection, interdependence, and deep vulnerability uh, can be the groundwork for practices of freedoms that work to rehabilitate the earth and to allow for the flourishing of all creatures rather than just as their destruction or as forms of hierarchy and domination which I think, you know, suffused so many of our contemporary practices of freedom. So basically, you're asking us to reconceptualize our entire being as one that is a collective as opposed to that narrative of individual bootstrapping. I am (laughs) asking us. Yes, (laughs) that is exactly what I'm doing. (laughs) I hope we get there because I think it would be better. Just think about it every time you have dinner with friends <laughs> or by yourself because you're still eating, you know, other people who are floating around. Exactly, exactly. And you're still being constituted by, you know, the toxic chemicals, the 10,000 toxic chemicals pervading your system that themselves shape your decisions and subjectivity. Right. Uh, you know, we're being shaped, you know, and the, you know, the star matter. Right. You know, it, it doesn't only have to be the toxic world, you know, thinking of like the James Webb telescope and the ways in which matter from the stars that actually predate our solar system is also shaping your subjectivity. The iron in your blood, you know, comes from supernovas. 
And how do all of these things from the most mundane to the most ethereal to the most violent and brutal, you know, shape, you know, who we are and how we engage with the world? And, you know, I I always think back to the the conversation that Hamlet has in the graveyard um, about, you know, this is this is that we all are dust and that, you know, sort of. who is he talking about? Alexander. I'm, I, we might be eating Alexander right now. And <laughs> exactly right. It's not new knowledge, which is all right. And, and certainly, you know, indigenous studies, you know, insists on that, right. Which so much of its understanding of relationality and connections between the human and the more than human world, you know, rely on that understanding. So Libby, what are you working on now that you've produced this amazing, fascinating and slightly depressing book? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, people have said that they find the book, uh, uh, you know, kind of dark in that way. But I find that looking at these small, disappointing, compromised practices of freedom is trying to argue that freedom is more accessible than narratives of, you know, of heroic transformation allow. And they actually, you know, I hope, especially in a world where we're all feeling overwhelmed, beat down and kind of, you know, powerless to the horrible changes around us, that it actually shows ways in which practices of freedom can be more accessible than we might otherwise imagine. Um, But my next project is tentatively titled Trickle Down Domination. And it's looking at the ways in which um, it's trying to look at people in the middle of uh, of systems of domination, people in the middle of systems of white supremacy or workplace domination or you know capitalism, and kind of how people in the middle both strictly obey the people who are above them in hierarchies of power, and then in turn subjugate the people below them and understand that subjugation is a way of accumulating power. So I'm interested in workplace violence. I'm interested in gender-based forms of domination. And I think we can look at, you know, abortion as, and the the glee in which average people who support, you know, support forced birth are literally supporting the forcedness of forcing, you know, people to give birth as a practice of their own pleasure and, um, you know, and workplaces and middle management and things of that nature. So that is that is what I'm exploring right well, now. Well, I look forward to talking to you about it when when it becomes a book. <laughs> Sounds great. I would love to. <laughs> um, I would like to thank Libby Anchor uh, for joining me today to talk about Ugly Freedoms, published by Duke University Press in 2022. I believe this is available at the Duke University Press website. Is there any brick and mortar store that you would like to give a shout out to, Libby? Yes, I would love to give a shout out in D.C. to both Politics in Prose and to Loyalty Books. I know both of them carry the book and are great independent bookstores. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking with you, Lily.